If you will turn to your Bibles, into your Bibles, and to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Our text this morning will be verses 11 through 14. As you're making your way there, I want to remind you, uh, Jeremy announced earlier that we'll be having a members meeting tonight. All of you are invited, member or no member, if you're a member or not, uh, but we especially want to encourage you to be here tonight. We have a lot to present to you this evening, and tonight we'll be having probably what we could say is one of the first major big uh, kind of updates as far as where we are with our building planning team and the capital campaign team. Both of those groups will be meeting tonight, and there'll be a, even a brief time for just a little bit of Q&A uh, this evening. Uh, so there's a lot to present to you this evening at 6 p.m., and so um, if you're able and around, uh, please uh, come tonight. There's uh, important information uh, of, that will be presented this evening regarding things going on ministry-wise, but also as we look ahead together as a church. And so it's an important time. Uh, always, anytime we have a members meeting, we want to encourage you to be there. Those are very important. Um, this is for you to participate in and to be part of. And so please, if you can be there this evening, we would encourage you. 6 p.m., right out there in the multi-purpose room. Um, love to see you back here this evening. All right, Romans. Romans chapter 13. Let me read beginning of verse 11. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we know that it is by your word that you sanctify your people. So Lord, would you do that today? Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you change us and make us more like Christ Father, for those who may be here today that are not trusting in Christ, would you cause faith to come alive in them that they might believe and be saved? Father, this is your word. Would you take it now and implant it in us and do what you desire for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do you keep walking faithfully as a Christian? general question, I know, but it's an important one to ask. There are so many things in this life that pose a threat to our walk as believers. Obviously, we have an enemy. The Bible describes him as like a lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour. We obviously live in a world that is broken and fallen, a world that is marked by the curse of sin. We live in a world filled with human depravity. It's all around us. Just look in the mirror. 
So we live in a world that we have an evil one. We live in a world that is all messed up. It's broken. It's impacted by sin. And then there's the reality of our own flesh, our own human sinfulness, individuals struggling. So the reason I ask, how do you keep walking faithfully as a Christian? It's important because we have so many things against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Well, as we've made our way through the book of Romans, we've seen how Paul, just in the structure of the letter alone, we've seen how Paul looks back to the work of Christ as a way to encourage present obedience, right? Chapters 1 through 11, gospel, the mercies of God, the beautiful in-depth description of how God saves sinners to make us his people. And then in chapters 12 through 16, we're in the middle of those right now, we see how the, the gospel then informs, it shapes how we live out our lives. And so what Paul does, just in the structure of the letter alone, he gives us the gospel in detail, and then he says, now, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, chapters 1 through 11, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Because of the gospel, because of the mercy of God in your life, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you, present yourself as living sacrifices. So what Paul does is he goes back to the gospel. He looks back into the past and looks at the work of Christ as it's unfolded throughout history, and he says, because of this, be living sacrifices. Because of this, live faithfully. And friends, that's absolutely essential to us and our lives as Christians. Everything we do, everything we do is in view of the mercies of God. But, Paul goes further. He spent 11 chapters giving us gospel motivation for present obedience, but now he's going to spend a few verses looking to the future. He's going to now direct our gaze not back to the past. He's done that for 11 chapters. You should have got that already. Now, instead of looking to the past, he's going to say, let's look to the future. He's going to encourage believers now with the future reality. He says in verse 11, you know the time or knowing the time. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. What he's referring to here is the approach, the imminent approach of what we call the end. I don't know why we call it the end, because it's really not the end. It's the end of what we know, but it's the beginning of eternity. When Christ comes and he makes all things new and he restores what's broken and he gives us eternity with him forever. That day's coming. So what he does here is he looks to the future, the reality of this coming day, and he uses this now as a sense of motivation and encouragement. So notice what Paul has done in Romans. Basically, we could say this, both past grace and future promise are critical to present faithfulness. I ask you the question, how do you keep walking faithfully as a Christian. Well, 
Answer number one, chapters one through 11. Look back to the mercies of God. Rely upon the grace and mercy of God. Look back to what God has done in Jesus Christ to accomplish your salvation. Cling to that, hope in that, and know that is the primary way that God spurs you on to faithfulness as a, as a Christian. But also, in addition to that, look to the day that's approaching. Look to what we have to inherit. Both the past mercies of God and the future promises of God are critical to present obedience to God. So today we're going to look more at that future promise and how it spurs us on to present faithfulness. Since the end is approaching, since the coming of Jesus, as he says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Since that is coming, how then does God call us to live? We're going to look at four characteristics that mark Christians in light of the approaching day of Christ. So these are four characteristics, four traits, if you will, that ought to mark you. If you say you follow Jesus, these four things need to be part of your daily life. you're not a Christian, as you hear these things, my prayer for you is that God, by His Holy Spirit, as we think about what He's done in Jesus Christ, that He will make these things desirable in your heart, that you will want these things because of what we find in Jesus. So let's look at these four characteristics that should mark Christians in light of the approaching day as we anticipate the coming. So again, we're looking to the future, the future promise of the coming day of Jesus as a motivation for present faithfulness. So what does that then look like? What does that lead to? Number one, it leads to a sense of urgency. One of the things that ought to mark your life as a Christian is a sense of urgency. Verse 11, besides this, knowing the time, or you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That's all for the youth this morning. Right? After disciple now, the, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. No, it's for all of us. It's for all of us. For salvation is nearer, he says, to us now than when we first believed. I you to think about that statement for a minute. The hour has come, he says, for us to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now, don't get tripped up on that. What do you mean salvation? I thought I had salvation. In that chapters 1 through 11, I've believed in Jesus. Don't, don't I have salvation? And you're saying it's still to come? One of the things that we have to realize regarding this word salvation, what Paul is referring to here is the future aspect of salvation that we've not yet experienced. When the Bible talks about salvation, the Bible talks about salvation in different ways. It talks about salvation in the past, it talks about salvation in the present, and it talks about salvation in the future. And depending on what the particular writer is dealing with at that time, we need to understand that salvation is a comprehensive term that describes the entire process of salvation from, really we could go before eternity, to eternity. Okay? 
I know that a lot of times when we think of salvation, we think of that moment of conversion when we went from being lost to being saved, or we went from being not a Christian to being a Christian, and that's part of salvation for sure. Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved. There's the past tense. These are just examples. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, this present reality of salvation, those who are being saved. And then in Romans 5, 9, we talk about this future aspect. Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the Bible uses this term salvation to refer to past, present, and future realities of our salvation. Here in this text, he's, he's looking to the future reality. The, the promise that we have awaiting us, the inheritance, the completion, when we're made fully like Christ and we inherit eternity. That's what he's referring to when he says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So here we're looking to that future aspect. And notice what Paul says. He says, in light of that, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. Notice here that Paul uses day-night, dark light language. The night and darkness, oftentimes in Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, this language is, is metaphor language that's usually describing the present evil age. It's also a metaphor for sin. So what he's saying here is, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So in contrast to the night and darkness, we could talk about light and day, oftentimes metaphors for the kingdom of God or for righteousness. And Paul says here, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The idea of sleep here is a moral carelessness. It's not physical sleep. It can involve physical sleep, but what he's getting at here, he's, he's saying, listen, the time has come for you to wake from sleep, to quit being careless. It's an exhortation to these believers that in light of the coming day, they need to live with a sense of urgency. Wake up. He's saying you must wake from your stupor and live as if it's the day because it is dawning. It's an important command to us because we often find ourselves relapsing, don't we? We get lazy, we grow cold, we grow weary. We get caught up in the daily grind and we lose that perspective of our future inheritance. We lose that sense of urgency that Jesus is coming again soon. You know, I know that uh, many of us, I'm sure many of you, just like myself, were keeping track of the hurricane coverage this past week. And definitely we need to continue praying for all those impacted by that storm. I remember at one point watching the Weather Channel. I think I was in the living room and family was around, and I don't know who I was talking to at the time, but I remember at least thinking to myself, Maybe I said this out loud. It's like, what did we do before Jim Cantore and Topper Shut? I mean, really. 
What, what did we do? I mean, just think about the technology and forecast capabilities that we have today. Downright amazing. I mean, you can watch a hurricane weeks out form and develop and intensify and weaken and intensify, and, and over time they can, they can tell you where it's going to make landfall. You could watch all this on your TV, and if you're in harm's way, you have time to get out of the way quite amazing. I mean, I say that because, I mean, just think about throughout most of human history. One day you're out playing in the yard. The next thing you know, you're, your home's being blown away. No warning. As Christians, we have something much greater and something much more sure and capable to rely upon when it comes to the coming of Christ. You know, Paul is, he's a Jim Cantore here, isn't he? He's telling us the day is coming. He's telling us the day is approaching and now is the time to act like it. There's, there's no time for you to just kick back and, and get into step with with. Preparing for that day. By the way, one of the little distinct differences between my illustration about a hurricane and the coming day of Christ is you don't know the exact time when it's going to happen. So the time to prepare is not Tuesday or when the kids get older or when I get out of college and I can kind of get my life put together. No, the time is now. The time to prepare is now. The reality that is that though our lives aren't often reflecting this reality. Oftentimes our lives look more like a, someone who was surprised that we even were, had a hurricane. You know, you talk to this, oh, we have a hurricane, you know, there's a storm coming? That's how a lot of Christians live. Like people who stay home, kick back on their patio when a hurricane is fast approaching. We're back to Paul's imagery here. We just soon sleep in, even though the day is dawning. Friend, if it's true that on that day we will be fully transformed, then we need to live today preparing for that day. What this looks like among those who profess to follow Christ is oftentimes when we're talking about sleepiness, is this spiritual carelessness. There's no real desire for holiness. There's no engagement of the spiritual disciplines. There's no concern to make disciples. The day is coming, and Jesus will come again, and we need to live like it. So there's a sense of urgency that ought to characterize our lives as Christians. Not apathy, not sleepiness, not laziness, not apathy. None of those things ought to mark your life. You need to live up every day as if the day could be today, and it could be. So there's a sense of urgency that ought to characterize you. Number two, your life ought to be characterized by a sense of warfare. Warfare. Look at verse 12. 
The night is far gone, the day is at hand. It's a statement. So then. I love how the Bible is often organized. It gives you a fact, a statement, and then an imperative, a command. Because this is true, do this. That's what we find in verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, because of that, let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This idea of armor here gives us a, a picture of, of warfare, doesn't it? This is warfare language. Friend, what this is telling us is there is still a threat on your life. Although the day is dawning, sometimes we're tempted to live as if we're still in the darkness. But yet there's a still a battle raging. Brothers and sisters, this, this idea of having a sense of warfare, this idea of casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light, this, this reminds us that, that war, I mean, just think about war, it requires vigilance in combat. Putting on armor, as we're talking about here, obviously he's using this war language to describe our preparation for the day in which we live. Listen, evil still lurks. The, workness, the, the works of darkness still abound, and are many around us. Our desires are still jacked up. And friends, if you wake up every day without preparing for the battle, you're going down. And many of you know exactly what I mean by that because you've been living that way. You know what it feels like to... It feels like you've lost your sense of joy. You've lost your sense of fight against sin. You don't put up a fight against those temptations anymore. You just give in. You're weary. Friend, this admonition here is a call for the Christian to not go back. It's a call, it's a reminder for us to, to not relapse into the former ways. Many in Rome had been saved out of lifestyles characterized by gross immorality. And he's simply saying here, don't Go back. Don't give back, don't give in to those former ways. Don't, don't, don't buy the lie that there's pleasure there. What he's in essence saying, he says, Jesus is far better. He's infinitely better than any earthly pleasure you can fathom. You need your battle gear on every day. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 10 and following, and you'll find that gear explained for you there. Several, thing Paul, several things Paul highlights here. Number one, this sense of warfare, he's reminding us that we need to, and he, and he highlights several things here. This is not an exhaustive list. He just kind of points out a few things here to remind them, especially in their context in Rome, many of the things of which would have marked their day and marked their histories and marked their past. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, but it's, it's a list that I think is helpful for us to consider and then make application beyond it. Several things he highlights here. Number one is a sense of warfare against untamed pleasures. Listen, 
Rome, you know, I know we talk a lot of times about America or, or our Western culture today being, being marked by, um, by sin. We act as if somehow the world has, has only gotten worse. Do you realize how bad it's always been? Rome was known for its wild sex parties and drunkenness. Many of the believers would have been saved out of that kind of culture. And he's simply reminding him, them here that they're called to something far better, far greater, far more glorious. Peter picks up on the same thing. If you were to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4, he says something pretty similar. He says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh... So he's looking back to the past, back to the gospel. He says, arm yourselves. There's the armor, the, the warfare mentality here. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It goes on there. But notice here in, in Peter, he says, I think it's in verse 2. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. He sees that as the driving issue here. In fact, if you go back to our text in Romans 14, or excuse me, in Romans 13, verse 14, if you just skip down there, Notice Paul says that we're to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There you have desires. First Peter 4 is talking about the very same things, calling us to the very same activity. He's warning us about these human passions. And friends, we live in a day, just as Paul lived in a day, that celebrates wild kinds of pleasures and passions. Listen, there's a way to eat and drink and party that honors the Lord. And there's a way to eat and drink and party that dishonors the Lord. Listen, this is not a call to misery. God is not some killjoy. He's the author of true joy. He is the one that gives you pleasures forevermore. And these little cheap, cheap grabs of pleasure in this life, they're not worth it. They're not worth it. Brothers and sisters, you will often face a lot of intense pressure to be with certain people, to be in certain places that lead to certain actions that have no place in your life because they don't honor the Lord. And these actions, friends, will damage your witness, the witness of the church, and even ruin your life. Let this be a reminder to all of us that we need to be careful how we live, that we would walk wisely and with the proper view and awe of God, and that we would face life like it's a war, because it is. So there's this sense of warfare 
Paul hits it here with untamed pleasures, but there's also this idea of sexual immorality. He's already hit it on it a little bit here. Again, Rome was known for its depraved sex culture. Not much has changed, just in culture in general. And we see it here in our day, in our time, in our own culture. And Paul is simply reminding us all here that our lives are to be lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that includes this idea, this creation of sex. Listen, the world in which we live continues to present this picture of sex as something the Lord never intended it to be. So much presented to us today in the name of sexual freedom, sexual expression. And people are buying it hook, line, and sinker. Listen, sex is a good thing. It's a great thing. But it's not something for you to use however you want. It's not cheap. It's not something you just define however you want to define it. God created it. He gets to define it. He's the one that designed it for your good and flourishing and for his glory. For his glory. Many things continue to plague our culture, pornography being one of them. Terrible plague in our culture, and it's so easy to find. It's a mockery of the beautiful design that God has created. It undermines the value and dignity of both men and women, and so forth and so on. We could, we could go on and on about the many ways that that sexual immorality in our culture in our day is just, it continues to just consume us. Friend, I just encourage you, if you're struggling with these way, in, in any way with these issues, seek someone out and ask for help. An article called Sexual Detox, Tim Challies said this, so when you indulge in sexual sin, it reveals what you truly believe about sexuality. You believe that the pleasure of sin is better than the pleasure of obeying God by enjoying sex the way God created it to be enjoyed. You believe that the pleasure you derive, listen to this, you believe that the pleasure you derive from your sin is greater than the consequences your sins will have on you and those around you. And then he says this, you believe that your momentary pleasure is greater than the rewards the Lord has for you both in this life and the life to come. You buy a lie, and it will take you down. Friend, do not settle for cheap distortions of what God created as good. And if you have, know that there is hope for you. Know that there is forgiveness available. Know that God restores those who are broken. You don't have to leave here feeling the weight of your guilt and misery because you failed in these areas. Know that God sent his son to die on a cross to die for sexual immorality. If you'd simply look to him and trust in him and plead for him to have mercy upon you, ask for his forgiveness. But then there's this idea of anger and jealousy. Notice it's in the same list. You might think, well, Paul's hitting some big, major things here, and then he adds quarreling and jealousy. You think, well, that, we wouldn't put as much weight on those things. Well, he, it's in the same list. He, his point here is, is cast off 
works of darkness, no matter what they are, no matter if they're prominent in the culture, no matter if they're prominent in your heart, whenever we are jealous and willing to fight, what he's reminding us here is that we, we're often overlooking the fact of this, some, this reality that's bound up within our own human hearts. When we're jealous and when we're willing to fight, we're often wanting to point to something outside of us instead of looking within. Notice what James chapter 4 says about this. James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 is very helpful in helping us understand our own depravity and our own human hearts. He says in verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you hear what he said? Do you know, next time you get in a fight, guess who's at fault? You. You are. Why are you fighting? Why are you jealous? Why do you, why do you have these in, inward, why do, you, why do you have these expressions of anger and bitterness and, and frustration with someone? It's because your passions are at war within you. You want something and you're not getting it, so you're angry. And what we like to say is, well, I'm mad because they. Well, they might have provided the context. What they're doing is they've provided the context for you to expose your selfishness. And so they're not ultimately to blame. They're part of the problem. But your passions are at war. You desire something, you're not getting it, so you're mad. Fighting and quarreling exposes that. Simply walking us through these passages, I think he's helping us realize that there's something more at play than just outward manifestations of sin. What really is the issue at hand is the, is the heart, the passions, the desires. We are at war with the enemy. But listen, I think this devil-made-me-do-it mentality is too common today. We have a true enemy, and he is active. But one of the things that he can do, one of the, things, one of the ways that, that he works best is just leaving you to yourself. He just lets you do what you are doing. There's not much work for him to do, except maybe dangle a little carrot here and there. Just kind of, the passions are already there, the desire's already there, and he just kind of lures you in a little bit more and a little bit more. We are at war with an enemy, but we are also at war with our passions. Notice in verse 14 again here in Romans 13, he says, Make no provision to gratify the flesh and its desires. Make no provision or make nor forethought. Literally, don't let anything, anything go into your head that would lead to a sinful desire. Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? He says, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? Yeah, gouge it out. That's gross. That sounds painful. Does he really mean to do that physically? He's, getting, he's using metaphor there to explain, but, but he's talking about the radical steps we need to take in order to amputate sin from our life. Don't play around with it. It's like playing with a snake. It's going to bite you. Snakes are only good dead, and so is sin. 
It's my opinion on that. I love what Martin Luther said about this making no provision to gratify your flesh. Luther said, I cannot keep sparrows from flying around my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. I think that's a helpful word. You're not going to be able to, listen, I think a lot of times we do this, we think we can keep them from sin. Guess what? They're also a sinner. We think we all can oftentimes shelter them from all these bad things, and there's wisdom in that, especially when they're younger. You know, I think there's wisdom in that. But listen, you can't keep the sparrows from flying around. You can't keep the world and all of its sinfulness from flying around. We're just in it, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hair. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Lick Duncan said this. He said, the Christian life is not sleep. It is war. It's a fight. There's no point in the Christian life when the flesh and its desires no longer constitute a danger for the believer. Did you hear that? There is never, there is no point in the Christian life, this side of heaven, there's no point in the Christian life when the flesh and its desires no longer constitute a danger to the believer. If you think that you have somehow matured your way out of yielding to your flesh and its desires, you're deceived. Friends, the Christian life is not, that's why we can't afford to sleep. That's why we can't afford to grow weary or complacent or lax in our walk. That's why we must wake up. That's why we must stand firm. That's why we must put on the armor day after day after day after day. Believers, we are called to live this life awake. There's a battle going on and we have no time to sleep. So not only do we have a sense of urgency, we're called to have a sense of warfare. Then lastly, a couple of other, two, two last points and they'll go quickly. We need a sense of discernment. Look at verse 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. And he gives the list there, not in orgies, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Notice there at the beginning of that verse, let us walk properly. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. In other words, not just walk, but walk properly. There's a right way to walk, and there's a wrong way to walk. Paul often uses, and other, other places in the Bible, often use this term walk to describe the Christian life, reminding us that the Christian life is not just a sprint. It's, it's not a, a fast run and then it's done. It's a walk. It helps us to be reminded that, it, that, that, that it's not just a quick burst of energy, but it requires a steady, long, consistent stride. And friends, that often requires wisdom and discernment, doesn't it? If we're going to walk properly, we need to discern rightly. You need to know what it means to walk properly. Very similar place. I know we're looking at a lot of different passages today, but I think all of these help us understand this calling that we're called to here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul wrote this. This is what he says. 
But I say, walk. How do you walk properly? Walk by the Spirit. This is the reminder here of the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You're not just walking in your own strength, in your own power, in your own discernment. You're walking properly as you depend upon the Holy Spirit of God in you. Walk by the Spirit and look. You'll do what he said not to do in Romans 13, 14. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So one of the ways that we walk properly is we walk by the Spirit. We walk as we seek the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, as we seek to reflect the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We looked at one of those last week as we looked at love and how we love each other. One of the ways that you walk properly is go to that list in Galatians 5. Understand how it's describing those who walk by the Spirit the Spirit of God. How do you know if you're walking by the Spirit? These things will be manifest in your life in some way. In some way. Another thing, back to this idea of, of requiring discernment and wisdom. We see this in, in Ephesians 4, but we also see it here in Romans. This, this idea, you see it in verse 12 of casting off and putting on. Paul in Ephesians 4 says put off and put on. And he does it again in Colossians 3. He calls us to put off, to cast off, literally to throw off works of unrighteousness, works of darkness, and to put on righteousness. The Christian life, listen, the Christian life is, is not a life you're called to live just to quit doing certain things. Oh, those are bad things. I should not do those anymore. Therefore, I'm a Christian. No, it's not that. It's as you seek to put to death mortify the deeds of the body as you seek to put to death these ungodly patterns in your life you're replacing them with new behaviors and new patterns and new works that are righteous and good so how does all that work it requires wisdom and discernment if you go back to Romans 12 verse 2 do not be conformed to this world quit doing the things you used to do then what does he say? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, a sense of discernment is absolutely essential if you're going to walk faithfully as a Christian. If our desires are going to be shaped so that our lives are in step with Christ, then our minds need to be filled with truth. And then number four, there's a sense of transformation. See, we have a sense of urgency. We have a sense of war. We have a sense of discernment and a sense of transformation. These are all things that ought to characterize you and your life and what you're living for. Notice verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier he said, put on the armor of light. In other words, let Jesus be the clothes you wear. I'm not talking about Christian t-shirts. I'm talking about Jesus being who you put on every day, meaning that you're following hard after him. It's a call to clothe your soul in the habits and ways of Christ, knowing, Romans 8, 28, 29, that you're being conformed to the image of Christ. Christian t-shirts are cool. He's calling us to more than that. Your life better reflect what your shirt says. See, our relationship to Jesus was initiated at conversion, but there's a reality that we need to regularly put on Christ so that our character is more and more like his character as we walk. Be conformed to his image. As I said earlier, life is filled with challenges, temptations, struggles. But you know, with all this world and what it throws at us, we need not despair. The world, the flesh, the devil, may come, it does come hard at us every day. It may throw all kinds of things at you. But you need not cave. You need not despair. You need not just fall to the ground in hopelessness because Christ is coming again. The day is approaching. He has promised us in the past based upon what he's done. All of these provided for us to be his people. He's promised us a day in the future. And that gives us hope for the present to live as Christ has called us to live. Revelation 22 verse 16. Jesus identifies himself as the bright and morning star. And when he comes, he will shatter the night. And he will bring the fullness of his salvation to bear upon those who trust in him. Friends, that day is on the horizon. That day is coming soon. As we close, I want to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, because I think Paul, in a different letter to a different church, sums this up quite well. Listen to this exhortation. Brothers and sisters, you are not in darkness. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Just let that be a reminder to all of us. Let this sense of urgency characterize you. Take up a wartime mentality. Walk properly with right discernment. And clothe yourself in the way of Christ. Because the day is coming, that's how we've been called to live. Are you giving yourself to these things, these realities, these characteristics? Do these mark you? and consider them and give yourself to them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this calling, this exhortation, this reminder. That this day is soon dawning. 
I know that Paul was able to say it in his day. We're able to say it in our day because we know that between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, we live in that sense of urgency, in that sense of war, responsibility that we have to cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Lord, would you help us see where we have failed to do that? Lord, there's not a person in this room that has done that perfectly and has done that consistently and done that faithfully. Lord, we all fail. We all fall short. We all struggle. We all cave. We all give in. We all live in ways that reflect the world more than it does Christ. Father, would you forgive us and would you help us? Lord, may this word today that we hear just be a means that you use in our lives to spur us on, to keep us faithful, to help our mind, to help our gaze, to be fixed upon the day that is fast approaching, to realize, Lord, that we don't have time to waste as we live in this present darkness, but Lord, the bright and morning star is soon to come. So Lord, would you give us just a heart that is shaped by this truth and this reality. Father, would you move in our lives today and call us to faithfulness. Lord, how do we remain faithful as Christians? We look to the past, but we also look to the future. Father, help our lives to be marked by these things for your glory, we pray. We pray this in Christ's name.